Welcome back to Mark's Madness. That had a different energy about it. That had a different. That had a. We're recording the second episode in the same day kind of energy about it right there. <laughs> oh, I would just try to adjust to the whoops. I have no idea what note I hit there, but it was not. Good. No, no, that was me. That was all me. My whoops were all over the place there. That that was off key as hell. Um, that being said, welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. How y'all we're doing? doing? We're doing it again. Um, that being said, this is uh, again we are going to try and get some more episodes uh backed up backlogged so that mm-hmm. we we can you know have some flexibility here and that being said there are no current events for this week because we're recording this right after the events yeah, of last week which was the the cuba was, current event so i was gonna say there are a lot of current events this week none of them are from the last hour nothing has happened in the last hour that i'm aware of mm-hmm. and so there will be no if current it has events happened, this week. we've been busy recording so we don't know we have no idea yeah uh we're aloof. that Ignore that, being that comment s- we don't know about it yet we don't know about it yet. Don't don't add us. We're fine. That being said, we're going to dive right into the reading this week at the top of page 585, first paragraph down. Forms of democratic government went on, but they were almost fant- fantastic in their travesty on real popular control. International freebooters and bandits, now as lone and picturesque masked highwaymen, now hunting in packs and mercenary armies, gripped and guided the efforts of a vast nation to get rich after the indiscriminate murder and destruction of four years' war. All this led to disaster, which threatened the industrial machine. Those who still believed in democracy came to the rescue and saw salvation, in the North as in the South, in universal suffrage. In the South, universal suffrage could not function without personal freedom, land, and education. And until these institutions were real and effective, only a benevolent dictatorship in the ultimate interests of labor, black and white, could establish democracy. In the North, democracy ceased to function because of corruption and bribery. The open buying of elections, low and selfish ideals, and the officials chosen to misgovern in the interest of industrial freebooters. The party of democracy saw salvation and increased freedom of industrial competition through the up, through the uprooting of tariff nurtured monopoly and civil rights reform, which would replace knavery and selfishness by character and ideal in public office. Then with an electorate of growing intelligence, democracy would truly function. But the electorate, despite schools and churches, was not intelligent. It was provincial and bigoted, thinned by poverty-stricken and ignorant peasant laborers from abroad, and impregnated with the idea that individual wealth spelled national prosperity and particularly with the American assumption of equal economic opportunity for all, which persisted in the face of I do miss the early chapters of this book where he just basically every other sentence said, the American dream is bullshit, so it's nice to see him back to that. (laughs) Only a vast and single-eyed dictatorship of the nation could guide up from murder in the South and robbery uh, robbery and cheating in the North into a nation whose infinite resources would be developed in the interest of the mass of the nation, that is, of the laboring poor. Dictatorship came, and it came to guide the industrial development of the nation by an assumption of irresponsible monarchical power, such as an as enthroned the Caesars by the methods of efficiency of accomplishment and control never surpassed among so many millions of men. God damn, Du Bois! He, is, he is. He is railing the bullshit, and he is poetic about it. Yeah, but the object of this new American industrial empire, so far as that object was conscious and normative, was not national well-being, but the individual gain of the associated and corporate monarchs through the powers of vast profits on enormous capital investment. 
Through the efficiency of an industrial machine that bought the highest managerial and engineering talent and used the latest and most effective methods and machines in a most of in, in a field of unequaled raw material and endless market demand. That this machine might use the profit for the general wheel was possible and in cases true. But the uplift and well be the uplift yeah, and well-being and well-being of the mass of men of the cohorts of common labor was not its ideal or excuse. Profit, income, uncontrolled power in my business for my property and for me. This was the aim and the method of the new monarchical dictatorship that displaced democracy in the United States in 1876. Holy shit, mm-hmm. boys. Uh Part and parcel of this system was the emancipation. Well, I'm just, I'm so used to the last like eight chapters have just been him railing statistics. <laughs> like he's kept it very See, like neutral and just because, like, we're going to do because stats. He was, he was preparing you for when he sounded like Marx. So he got the statistics in <laughs> and now he's got the fireworks in. And now yeah. we're going off, baby. This is post chapter 15. We are on it. We are on one now. Part and parcel of this system was the emancipated South. Property control, especially of land and labor, had always dominated politics in the South. And after the war, it set itself to put labor to work at a wage approximating as near as possible slavery conditions in order to restore capital lost in the war. On the other hand, labor was in open revolt by army desertions, by the general strike and arming of black labor, by government employment through the army and the Freedmen's Bureau, but its revolt could only be shown by refusal to work under the old conditions, and it had neither permanent organization nor savings to sustain it in again, such a fight. This is yes, again the problem. Again, this is why we talk about organizing. The, the sparks are spontaneous. The actions are never spontaneous. They they spontaneously spark off the use of organized action. And this is where, again, I don't want to drown out Lenin's quote or sound like, oh, I discovered this one little neat way to say it. It's the greatest thing ever. And just like sound like I do this too much, right? Uh, Lenin's quote is good as it is, where there's decades where nothing happens and weeks where decades happen. And he's talking about historically written and world-changing events and how quickly they happen. And you know, the poetic strength of it, everything is there. And anyone that hears it should understand these things. But just because who he said it to was a very organized population. And because America is not a very organized population. I just want to be clear that when he says that it's not that nothing happens in those decades where nothing happens, organizing happens in those decades where nothing happens. And then those weeks where decades happen, all that organizing and thrown into action. And then it depends on, is that socialist action? Is that counter-revolutionary action? Is that fascist action? All depends on who is organized and whose interests the outcomes of those key events in history serve. Amen. Into this situation, Northern Capital projected itself through the agency of the so-called carpetbagger. The carpetbagger tried to stimulate production on the Northern model. He offered the laborer higher wages and yielded him political power. He tried to establish wide systems of transportation and to exploit new raw materials. His efforts involved the same overthrow of old standards of honesty and integrity prevalent in the North, and this was emphasized in the South by the post-war bitterness and war losses of capital. 
The orgy of graft, dishonesty, and theft north and south was the same pattern and involved the same sorts of people, those scrambling to share in the distribution of new goods and services which the new industry in the north and the restoration of the old agricultural in the south poured out, and those trying to get legal titles to the new forms of property and income which were arising. The south, however, had two peculiar elements— a capitalist class deprived of most of its capital except land, and a new class of free black labor with the right to vote. Into the hands of this body of labor, the North had been compelled by the intransigence of the planters themselves to place a tremendous dictatorship, and this dictatorship of labor was gradually being set to change the whole pattern of distribution of wealth. But Southern labor was thinking in terms of land and crops and the old forms of wealth and was but dimly conscious of the new industry and the new wealth. And that makes wealth. sense. You know, they hadn't been industrialized yet, and there wasn't this kind of party organizing campaign you see in other places that hadn't been industrialized, like you would see later in Russia or China or something like that. And so if you don't have people educating you politically and you don't have industrialization to see it, it's kind of an unknown. How are they supposed to see that, right? Um, the landholder, therefore, in the South was caught in a curious vice. Impoverished by the war, he found labor in control of the remaining parts of his wealth and determined to distribute it for the uplift of the mass of men. He found carpetbaggers encouraging this by yielding the political power of laborers and manipulating that power so as to put it in the hands of carpetbaggers, the new wealth arising from corporations, railroads, and industries. He found the carpetbagger trying to raise the capital necessary for new investments through spending money borrowed by the state, and thus increasing the taxation on him, which already new social legislation on behalf of the laborers had increased. The result was that a scramble ensued in the South as mad as that in the North, but different, more fundamental, more primitive. It had been insistently and firmly believed by the best thought of the South that, one, the Negro could not work as a free laborer, Two, the Negro could not really be educated, being congenially inferior. And three, if political power were given to Negroes, it would result in virtually virtually in the overthrow of civilization. And mind you, very, very, very racist Southerners very much believe this because, again, and this the function of racism serves power, right? People had to believe this to justify slavery, just the same way people believe really, really racist shit to justify wars in the global south. Really, really racist shit to justify police brutality and such a large prison system that we have in the United States to justify poverty and homelessness. This is the kind of thing that gets into people's brains, so of course they believe these things. Now it is cool. Now, it is quite clear that during the period we're studying, the results failed to prove these assumptions. First of all, the Negro did work as a free laborer. Slowly but certainly, the tremendous losses brought by the Civil War were restored, and restoration as compared with other great wars was comparatively rapid. By 1870, the Cotton Kingdom was reestablished. By 1875, the South knew that the cheap labor and freedom from government control, it was possible for individuals to reap large profit in the old agriculture and in the new industry. The restoration of southern industry varied according to crops and conditions. 
the cotton crop, for instance. Here we're back to these statistics, by the way, uh, <laughs> which Damn was two point four million in eighteen fifty, and a leap to the high mark of five point three million in eighteen sixty, dropped to three million in eighteen seventy, but had per- surpassed by eighteen eighty the high mark of eighteen sixty by reaching five point seven bales, and then went on to ten, twelve, fourteen million bales. The sugar production did not recover as quickly, but its decline began before the war. There were 247 million pounds in 1850, 230 in 1860, and only 87 in 1870. But by 1880, it had reached 178 million, and from then kept its path of recovery. Tobacco was 434 million pounds, 472 in 1860, 472 in 1880. The production of corn had recovered by 1880, and the average value of livestock farms had very nearly recovered by 1870. The production of wool in the South did not greatly decline and had rapidly recovered by 1880. Rice continued to decline begun before the war from 250 million pounds in 1850 to 178 million in 1860 to 73 in 1870 up to 110 in 1880. So again, everything recovered, but a few of these were already on the downslope. It is true that after a war, a larger and larger proportion of white laborers was in part responsible for the increased crops. But this simply proved that emancipating one class of laborers emancipated all and was to the credit of abolition. Nevertheless, the freeback laborer was the main constituent labor force in the South and as such largely responsible for the results. The land holdings in the South decreased, showing tendency toward peasant proprietorship. The average acreage was 335 in 1860 and fell to 214 in 1870 and 153 acres in 1880. The increase in the value of the machinery and the implements per acre, while not as great, showed gradual progress. The average value of farmland did not recover from its high speculative cost in 1860 until 30 years later. But on the other hand, its decrease in value from 1860 to 1870 was not large. The land, for instance, in 1870 in the South, was worth more in average value per acre, including improvements in livestock, than in 1850. The testimony of unprejudiced visitors as to the work of the Negro as a free laborer during these days is practically unanimous. Nordoff said in 1875, the Negro in the main is industrious, free labor is an undoubted success in the South. The Negro works, he raises cotton and corn, sugar and rice, and it is definitely to his credit that he continues to do so. And according to universal testimony, works more steadfastly and effectively this year than ever before 1865. Again, because he probably takes some pride in it. He's not being forced to and beaten and all these horrible things. Yeah. In spite of the political hurly-burly in which has lived in the last 10 years. Summer said, the testimony generally born of the Negro is that they work readily when regularly paid. <laughs> Amazing how that works. Uh, wherever I have consulted an effective employer, whether in the manufacturing works of Richmond or on the farms of plantations, such is the opinion with little variation that has been given. The testimony born of the Negroes by candid and substantial people is that while they do not afford the supply of steady labor necessary, and there is room for more of them or for more efficient laborers, they are doing much better than was expected before the emancipation. That the Negroes are improving and many of them rising under freedom into very comfortable and civilized condition is not only admitted in the upper circles of society, but would strike even a transient wayfarer like myself in the great number of decent colored men of laboring class and of happy colored families one meets. Manufacture began to develop in the South. The manufacture of pig iron 
of, oh, okay, of pig iron, yeah, assumed importance in Alabama in 1864, mm-hmm. and the output arose from 64,000 to 1.4 million in 1875. The manufacture of cotton goods increased in North and South Carolina. The number of mills in South Carolina was 270 in 1860 and 720 in 1880. That is a big-ass jump. Yep. The railroad mileage southeast of the Mississippi was 8,838 miles in 1860 and 11,501 in 1870. West of the Mississippi, the growth was even larger. In every southern state, 1860 to 66, the railroad mileage increased, sometimes only slightly, as from 973 to 1007 in South Carolina, from 1420 to 1502 in Georgia. But all of these figures include the rebuilding of railroads destroyed during the war. White labor was of increased importance in these lines, but colored labor was never negligible. With regard to education, the testimony is equally clear. Grant that the Negro began an almost as almost totally illiterate. The increase in schools and education, largely by his own initiative, is one of the most extraordinary developments of modern days and will be treated more in detail in the next chapter. Yeah, oh, that, that'll be a good chapter. chapter. Positive chapter. That'll be a good chapter. It is enough to say here that the question as to whether American Negroes were capable of education was no longer a debatable one in 1876. The whole problem was simply one of opportunity. The third problem of the Negro's use of his political power was not so clear because it involved matters of norm and ideal. Whose civilization, whose culture, whose comfort was involved? The Negro certainly did not attempt to overthrow civilization in the sense of attacking the fundamental morals and habits of modern life. Sir George Campbell said in 1879, during the last dozen years, the Negroes have had a very large share of political education. Considering the troubles and the ups and downs that they have gone through, it is, I think, wonderful how beneficial this education has been to them and how much these people so lately in the most debased condition of slavery have acquired independent ideas and far from lapsing into anarchy have become citizens with ideas of law and property and order. The white serfs of European countries took hundreds of years to rise to the level which these Negroes adopted in America. Before I went south, I certainly expected to find that the southern states had been in a time a sort of pandemonium in which a white man could hardly live. Yet certainly was not so. When I went to South Carolina, I was there at least... I thought there was at least I must find a great social disturbances. And in South Carolina, I went to County of Beaufort, the blackest part of the state in the point of population and that in which. Why do you write like this, you <laughs> asshole? Not yeah, you, this is an actual this, quote. This, this gentleman. This is a quote. Black rule had been the most complete and had lasted the longest. It was the reputation of being a sort of black paradise and per contra. I rather expected a sort of white hell. There I thought I should see a rough Liberia where blacks and ruled roughshod over the whites. To my great surprise, I found exactly the contrary. At no point that I have seen are the relations of the two races better and more peaceable. All the best houses are in the occupation of the whites. Almost all the trades, professions, and leading occupations. White girls go about freely and pleasantly as if no black had ever been in power. I don't no, like that fucking sentence. That's a pretty racist one considering just, just in the first place, let alone what we know about the history of miscegenation. So uh, whoever this dude was again, who is going to Beaufort, South Carolina, um, George, Sir, Sir George, George, Sir Campbell. George Campbell, yeah, you suck. <laughs> Get fucked here. The blacks still control the elections and send their representatives to the state assembly. 
In Mississippi alone did I find politicians silly enough to talk about the superiority of the Caucasian race and the natural incapacity of the Negro for self-government. But even there, the best Republicans told that those noisy Democratic demagogues were but a small, though aggressive and not unpowerful, minority. Sir George Campbell, however, makes one interesting observation. Oh, good. Not only is the Negro labor excellent, but also there is among the Southern proprietors and leading men accustomed to black labor and not so used to whites, a disposition greatly to rely on black labor as a conservative element, securing them against the dangers and difficulties which they see arising from the combinations and violence of the white labor in some of the northern states. And on this ground, the blacks are cherished and protected by Democratic statesmen who now hold power in the South. Oh, goody. If we include in morals and culture the prevailing manner of holding and distributing wealth, then the sudden enfranchisement of the mass of laborers threatens the fundamental far-reaching change no matter what their race or color. It was this that the South feared and had reason to fear. Economic revolution did not come immediately. Negro labor was ignorant, docile, and conservative. But it was beginning to learn. It was beginning to assert itself. It was beginning to have radical thoughts as to the distribution of land and wealth. If now it is true that the enfranchisement of black labor in the South did not crush industry, but gave the South a working class capable of being trained in intelligence and did not disturb the essential base of civilization, what is the indictment, the bitter and deep-seated indictment brought against the racism? It's racism. That's a clue. It's racism. (laughs) The indictment rests upon this unquestioned fact. Property in the South had its value cut in half during the Civil War. This meant that property was compelled after the war not simply to attempt to restore its losses, but to bear a burden of social expense largely because of the widened duties of the state and the greatly increased citizenship due to the emancipation and enfranchisement. The bitter conflict, therefore, was followed the which followed the enfranchisement of Negro labor and of white labor, came because impoverished property holders were compelled by the votes of poor men to bear a burden which they meant practically confiscation of much of that property which remained to them and were denied opportunity to exploit labor in the future as they had in the past. It was not then that post-bellum, that's a a new term, I guess, post-antebellum is post-bellum, The post-bellum South could not produce wealth with free labor. It was far more fundamental question as to whom this wealth was to belong to and for whose interests laborers were to work. There is no doubt that the object of the black and white labor vote was gradually conceived as one which involved confiscating the property of the rich, as it should. Uh, This was a program that could not only openly avowed by intelligent men in 1870, but has become one of the acknowledged functions of the state in 1933. And it is quite possible that long before the end of the 20th century, the deliberate distribution of property and income by the state on an equitable and logical basis will be looked upon as the state's prime function. There was a little song in the 50s where that did happen, so it was after Du Bois wrote this. But then, you know, McCarthyism bared big and kind of crushed that, and then we had Reagan and blah, 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 blah. Put all these facts together, and one gets a clear idea, not of the failure of the Negro suffrage in the South, but of the basic difficulty which it encountered, and the results are quite consistent with a clear judgment that Negro and white labor ought to have had the right to vote, that they ought to have tried to change the basis of property and redistribute income, and that their failure to do this was a disaster to democratic government in the United States. 
To men like Charles Sumner, the future of democracy in America depended on bringing the Southern Revolution to a successful close by accomplishing two things, the making of the black freedmen really free and the sweeping away of the animosities due to the war. What liberalism did not understand was that such a revolution was economic and involved force. Thank you to voice. <laughs> but up, up, but up, he hit it. Um, he said, he said the, the words. words. Um, those who against the public wheel ha- have power cannot be expected to yield save to superior power. The North used its power in the Civil War to break the political power of the slave barons. During and after the war, it united its force with that of the workers to uproot the still vast economic power of the planters. It hoped that with the high humanitarianism of Charles Sumner, eventually to induce the planter to surrender his economic power peacefully, in return for complete political amnesty, and hoped that the North would use its federal police power to maintain the black man's civil rights in return for peaceful industry and increasing intelligence. But Charles Sumner did not realize, and that other Charles, Karl Marx, had not yet published Das Das Kapital to prove to men that economic power underlies politics. Abolitionists abolitionists failed to see that after the momentary exultation of the war, the nation did not want Negroes to have civil rights and that the national industry could get its way easier by alliance with southern landholders than by sustaining southern workers. They did not know that when they let the dictatorship of labor be overthrown in the South, they surrendered the hope of democracy in America for all men. This is if we mention this is a good chapter. This is a good chapter. This is a. I thought this was going to be a this garbage a chapter good, where he just buried me with bad things. Well, it's just a voice going the. I fuck was going to say I, the, the, that the way the title of the chapter read, and we talked about this, right? This is kind of a piece of. I mean, every everything that's theory is also part history, and everything that's that's history is also part theory, and comes with its biases and things like that. But this is the first time we turned from something that was explicit theory to explicitly history. And now we're getting really deeply in the explicitly theory part of it, and it is right on. This is this is right up around. It, now we're suddenly getting back into our groove of, of who we are in this podcast. Um, doggedly to the end of his days, and with his dying breath, Charles Sumner strove for his peaceful revolutionary ideal. As early as 1870, he had tried to have the names of Civil War battles taken from the Army Register and the Regimental Colors. He introduced the matter in Congress again in 1872. He was unsuccessful, and not only that, he was publicly censored by his own Massachusetts legislature. When Congress met in the fall of 1871, Sumner made his last effort to carry his Civil Rights Bill. The first Civil Rights Bill of April 9, 1866, after varied experience in the courts, was superseded by the first section of the 14th Amendment. The present bill was aimed at the North as well as the South, and Sumner proposed to secure equality of civil rights to colored people and prohibit discrimination against them in railroads, theaters, hotels, schools, cemeteries, and churches, and in serving as jurors. He presented a series of petitions favoring the bill and tried to take an action on the bill, a condition of adjournment. Finally, he sought to make the pressure for reconciliation with the South a part of his movement for civil rights. He therefore moved his civil rights bill as an amendment to the amnesty bill, which had been passed in the House. 
And starting to quote, he thought the two measures should be associated in history, the one an act of justice and the other an act of generosity. And it was his opinion, not however justified by the result, that the desire for amnesty was so strong that when once his civil rights measure had been incorporated in it, the bill thus amended would pass by two-thirds vote. His amendment was lost in committee of the whole by a single vote, and moving it again after the bill was reported, he said, I entreat senators over the way, the Democrats, who really seek reconciliation now, to unite in this honest effort. Give me an opportunity to vote for this bill. I long to do it. Gladly I would reach out an olive branch, but I know in no way which can be done unless you begin the justice of the colored race. Colored people... Colored people held meetings to popularize the measure, but there was no wide interest in it. After the Christmas recess, Sumner made his final appeal. I make this appeal also for the sake of peace, so that at last there shall be an end of slavery, and the rights of the citizens shall be everywhere under the equal safeguard of national law. There is beauty in art, in literature, in science, and in every triumph of intelligence, all of which I covet for my country. But there is a higher beauty still in relieving the poor, in elevating the downtrodden, and in being a sucker to the oppressed. God, I miss you, Sumner. There is a true grandeur and an example of justice making the rights of all the same as of our own and beating down prejudice like Satan under our feet. Humbly do I pray that the Republic may not lose this great prize or postpone so its Sumner, enjoyment. So unfortunately, he as read- this is pointing out, really bad idealist, but truly the best of idealists. Really loves I don't Sumner. think he was an idealist. I think he just brought ideal. I, I don't think he was an idealist. He, he has shown time and time again that he is a practical motherfucker that would do what it needed to get done to get the job done. If anything, it was. Um, well, I don't I don't mean idealist as in like utopianist. I mean, idealist like if we bring about these these ideas of freedom, people will get it right. He's like he's trying to sell this idea of peace to people. I think he was trying to sell it, but I, again, I think he was trying to sell it on yeah. its merits. But I think he was also a practical, a practical yeah. ass guy. But again, I I get it. It's it's just oh God. I just having anyone like that speaking is just good. He read documents, letters, and newspaper extracts to show the necessity of the bill. The galleries were filled with colored people, but industry and the new finance look askance. Their attitude toward the abolition democracy was plainly expressed in 1876 by Henry Cook brother of jay cook the great banker you know how i have felt for a long time in regard to the course of the ultra infidelic radicals like wade sumner stevens etc omnigenous they were dragging the republican party into all sorts of isms and extremes their policy was one of bitterness hate and wild agrarianism i i again Bitterness and hate. Did you just read what right. Sumner fucking said? Right. Like, I mean, that's, that's the key. He lied. Wild agrarianism. And he sees it as a shot at his prospecting, at his, at his profits through stocks. Exactly. These reckless demagogues have had their day and their time has come for wiser and the time has come for wiser counsel with Wade uttering agrarian doctrines in Kansas and fanning the flames of vulgar prejudices, trying to array labor against capital. That's they're 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 naturally allayed against each other. Motherfucker. They're naturally allayed mm. against each other and pandering to the basest passions with Butler using the wholesale conscription throughout the South and the wholesale repudiation throughout the North with Stevens advocating the idea of a flood of irredeemable paper money with Pomeroy and Wade and Sprague and an honest host of other and a host of others clamoring for the unsexing of women. I don't even know what that means. I have no idea. 
The I don't even. Every, I assume that means every suffrage. Time, I was going to say every time anything like that has been uttered, right? Like how dare women not be womanized? It's it's always bigoted, right? It's always it's always misogynistic. Um, sometimes you know even transphobic and and you know homophobic and, and things like that. But it's always misogynistic. It's always a load of fundamentalist right wing crap. Even Schurz did not sympathize with Sumner. Yeah. Uh, Carl, you're on my list. list. And said little during. You're back on the fucking list. Reports is an asshole again. Ye of long ass reports. Sumner pushed the bill throughout the session, but despite his efforts, the bill failed. Another bill came from the House three months later, but was lost by a Senate vote. Just after that, Sumner again sought to attach his civil rights proviso to the amnesty bill. He lost in the committee of the whole by a single vote. He placed the civil rights bill on the calendar with the amnesty bill, but his strategy was finally defeated by a ruse, and the amnesty bill passed without the civil rights bill. I do want to say, bill. too, I just want to, like, f- he lost by a single vote, and I'm sure there are some amount of people who totally backed it, but I feel like this is probably like the Democratic Party today, where there's a fall guy, but if you replace that fall guy with someone more progressive, there'd just be another fall guy. They just happen to use the same fall guy over and over and over, whether it's like Mansion or or whatever the fuck, because they, they keep getting reelected in their little district. Yeah. On the first day of the new Congress, December 1873, Sumner pressed two measures, a national civil rights bill and a bill for equal rights in the schools of the District of Columbia. He traced in debate the history of the Civil Rights Bill from 1870 to 74 when he made his last appeal. The bill was not reported until after his death, and then Senator Frelinghausen said, Would that the author of this measure were here to present and defend it. To our view, it would have been becoming that he who was in the forum, the leader of the grandest victory of the 19th century in the Western Hemisphere, the victory of freedom over slavery, should have completed the work he so efficiently aided, but it was otherwise decreed. Are, are, is Du Bois never going to bring up the caning of Sumner? Like, ever? Is he just going to pass over I, it? Like yeah, I guess, it? He, I guess it was just supposed to be so widely known. I don't know. All right. At some point, we're going to do a mini-madness okay. on the caning of Sumner. Um, it passed the Senate, but was not voted on in the House. In February 1875, a new House bill omitting schools and cemeteries became a law. That's a new house bill omitting schools and cemeteries. All right. Yeah. So in it, was, it was like sub- Sumner's bill where he says, you know, equality and in, in the jury and the buses and things like that. And then they're saying, okay, but black people still got to do separate schools and, and some or don't have to have equal schools and cemeteries. I think he was also saying equal to not necessarily the same. So I think that's where a lot of that segregation, quote unquote, separate, but equal. when it was very obviously not equal came about. Makes sense. Sumner passed before the effect of the new alignment of big business on the Southern situation was clear. He was taken ill in March 1874. At his deathbed stood three Negroes, Frederick Douglass, George T. Downing, and Sumner Worley. Together with distinguished senators and officials, three times he said said hoarsely and in a tone of earnest entreaty, you must take care of the Civil Rights Bill, my bill, the Civil Rights Bill. Don't let it fail. This was his last public message. Frederick Douglass led his funeral procession and colored soldiers guarded his body at the state house in Boston. So died, as Sherman said, the foremost man in the civil service of the United States. 
William Lloyd Garrison had written, Your blood staining the floor of the Senate chamber was the blood of a martyr. Now it is given to you to wear a martyr's crown. There is no human but divine triumph. That is the not in the wisdom of man, but in the power I, of I God. I think Lloyd Garrison was probably referencing the caning there. Yeah. Oh, he was absolutely yeah, referencing so, the caning so right there. I guess you 100%. could say it was mentioned there, just not explicitly. The dream of democracy died hard. The final ratification of the 15th Amendment brought a special message from President Grant, March 30th, 1870, which was a curious historical significance. Such notification is unusual, but I deem a departure from the usual custom justifiable, a measure which makes at once four million of people voters who were heretofore declared uh, by the highest tribunal in the land, not citizens of the United States, nor eligible to become so with the assertion that at the time of the Declaration of Independence, the opinion was fixed and universal in the civilized portion of the white race regarded as an axiom in morals as well as in politics that black men had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect is indeed a measure of grander importance than any other one act of the kind from which the foundation of our free government to the present day. Blaine. Blaine? Yeah. Oh, no, Blaine, who preeminently represented that northern plutocracy, which was throttling democracy, still spoke with the voice of wisdom. The 15th Article of Amendment to the Constitution, now pending and about to be adopted, would confirm the color man's elective franchise and add the right of holding office. One of the senators just admitted from Mississippi in advance of the ratification on the amendment, Hiram R. Revels, was a colored man of respectable character and intelligence. He sat in the seat which Jefferson Davis had wrathfully fully deserted to take up arms against the Republic and become the ruler of a hostile government. Poetic justice, historic revenge, personal retribution were all complete when Mr. Revel's name was called on the roll of the Senate. But his present, while demonstrating the extent to which the assertion of equal rights had been carried, served to increase and stimulate the Southern resistance to the whole system of Republican Reconstruction. Those who anxiously had studied the political situation in the South could see how unequal the contest would be, and how soon the men who organized the rebellion would again wield the political power of their states, wield it lawfully if they could, but unlawfully if they must, peaceably if that would suffice, but violently if violence in their judgment became necessary. And that is something, too, to remember here, right? Life is not a movie. <laughs> if it was a movie, Rebels would take no. Jefferson Davis's seat and, and you know, as two-time Daytona 500 champion Jeff Davis retired out of that seat, that's, that's the grand ending, right? That's the crescendo. You've done it. You've defeated it. And that's not how life works. Um, there's backlash. There's complications. History trods on. And life is a little harder than, than one person sitting in a very, very poetic seat. Um, the reform movement in the North, which Sumner joined, was abortive. First, it split the combination of industry and abolition democracy, which had won the Civil War and reconstructed the South, and it had threatened to put the Copperhead Democratic Party back in power. This latter party had not only supported the South against the East in the Civil War, but it had fought the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and now was seeking to unite with the radical West. The abolition democracy itself was largely based on property, believed in capital, and formed in effect a powerful petty bourgeois. It believed in democratic government, but only under the, the general dictatorship of property. 
Most of the leaders of the revolt of 1872 in the North lived on in investments or received salaries from investments. They did not believe in a democratic movement which would confiscate and redistribute property, except possible in an extreme case like slavery. But even here, while they seized the stolen property in human bodies, they never could bring themselves to countenance in the redistribution of property in land and tools, which rested in the fact that no less defensible basis. Not only then did property complaint of the South fall on the sensitive and responsive ears, they were the more aroused at familiar complaints of theft and corruption in the public office because this was precisely the thing they were fighting in the North. They found themselves in dilemma. They could not join the ex-slave Democratic Party and repudiate their own investments in government bonds and industry. They could not maintain further political alliance with the industrial and political order eventually responsible for the credit mobilier, the whiskey ring, and the gold corner. Their logical path lay toward organized labor, leading a combination of eastern intellectuals, western peasant farmers, and the great army of labor. But the Panic of 1873 altered the face of society. The era of business and depression which followed helped this consultation of industrial control into a few hands. So now we're getting the Panic of 1873 mentioned. I did actually kind of summarize it a little bit. This was the one that was mostly caused by silver and the railroad crashes and then turned into a lot of the railroad strikes that we discussed before. Um the Panic of 1873 changed, too, the history of the South. Already in 1870, the Republicans had lost their two-thirds majority in Congress, and in 1874, for the first time in 20 years, the Democrats had a majority in the House of Representatives. They looked forward confidently to controlling the nation in 1876. Even in the face of catastrophe, the North had moral courage and the spirit of faith among large numbers of its best citizens. The history of abolition is full proof of this, but sacrifice must be built on faith. A saving nucleus of the North believed in the Negro from experience and study, but this is the same class that had lost faith in the democratic methods in the North. The experience with the Irish in Massachusetts and New York, misgovernment, crime, and dirt in the great industrial cities were attributed to the laboring masses. How could they rightly exercise their political power to rule? New England lost faith in democracy and cherished something like a race hatred for the Irish. Her Puritan past kept her just. She gave them schools. She refused discriminatory laws and religion. But she doubted, and even if she knew the end was mass rule, it was a long, long, bitter way, and a crisis was already there. The system of capital and private property... Our private profit smashed in 1873, and all property and investment were in dire danger. Labor was set at the edge of starvation, and democracy and universal suffrage could function only through revolution. But a new savior appeared. Already, industry had been undergoing a process of integration, alliance, and imperial domination. Instead of lawless freebooters, there were appearing a few strong, purposeful kings with vast power of finance and technique in their hands. They promised law and order. They promised safe income on sure property base with neither speculative bubbles nor criminal aggression. In other words, a new empire of industry was offering to displace capitalist anarchy and a form of dictatorship of capital to guide and repress universal suffrage. The conquest of the new... Oh, go ahead. The conquest of the new industry in the ranks of labor was quick and certain. The growth of the National Labor Union into a labor party along Marxist lines, which had been developing from the close of the war, began to become petty bourgeois. It began to fight for capital and interest and the right of the upper class to share in the exploitation of common labor. 
The Negro was a common laborer, belonged therefore not in but beneath the white American laborer movement. Craft and race union spread. The better paid, skilled, and intelligent American laborer formed itself into closed guilds and in combination with capitalist guildmasters extorted fair wages which could be raised by negotiation. Foreign-born and Negro labor was left outside and tried several times but in vain to start a class-conscious labor movement. Skilled labor proceeded to share in the exploitation of reservoir of of the reservoir of low-paid common labor and no strikes nor violence by overcrowded overcrowded competing beggars for subsistence could move the industrial machine so long as engineers and skilled labor kept it going to be sure the skilled labor guilds in the capital had bitter disputes and even open fighting but they fought to share profit from labor and not to eliminate profit Big business with high-salaried engineers, well-paid skilled labor, and a mass of voiceless common labor then offered terms to the nation. Profiteering, graft, and theft had run wild in the North under the extreme individualism of post-war industry. Northern business had protected its monopoly by high-tariff profit from investments in railroad and government bonds and new ventures. It had held its political power by the 14th Amendment and Reconstruction Acts, but its dominion and advance were threatened by loss of all moral standards. Cutthroat competition, political revolt threatened, which might result in lowering the tariff, attacking the banking and money system, and strengthening government control of business freedom. One way to forestall this was to affect inner control and coordination of business by centralizing the control of the power of capital, regaining the confidence of investors by sure and steady income, and driving from power the irregular banditi and highwayman of industry. Fortunately for them, the Panic of 1873 checked the reform movement of 1872 and delivered the country into the power of the great financiers without seriously breaking the power of capital. Reform became liberal, attacking theft and graft and calling for freedom of the South from military control. Thus, the radical revolution of controlling capital and forcing recognition of the rights of labor by government control was lost sight of. Labor was ensued, labor was labor war ensued in the North and serfdom was established in the South. But what of the South in this development? The planters had expected Negro governments to fall into infusion at the very beginning of the attempted dictatorship of labor. This did not happen. Writing in the American Historical Review, I said, in legislation covering property, the wider function of the state, the punishment of crime and the like, it is sufficient to say that the laws on these points established by Reconstruction legislation were not only different from and even revolutionary to the laws of the older South, but they were so wise and so well suited to the needs of the South that in spite of a retrogressive movement following the overthrow of the Negro governments, the mass of legislation with the elaboration and development still stands on the statute books of the South. Reconstruction constitutions practically unaltered were kept in Florida, 17 years, Virginia, 32 years, South Carolina, 27 years, Mississippi, 22 years. Even in the case of states like Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, and Louisiana, which adopted new constitutions to signify the overthrow of Negro rule, the new constitutions are nearer the model of the Reconstruction document than they are to the previous constitutions. They differ from the Negro constitutions in minor details, but very little in general conception. Besides this, there stands on the statute books of the South today, law after law passed between 1868 and 76, which has been found wise, effective, and worthy of preservation. 
This compels us to begin with the fact that the basic difficulty which the South after the war was poverty, a depth of grinding poverty not easily conceivable even in these days of depression. In the first place, it goes without saying that the emancipated slave was poor. He was desperately poor, and poor in a way that we do not easily grasp today. He was, and always has been, without money, and except for his work in the Union Army, had no way of getting hold of cash. He could ordinarily get no labor contract and involved regular or certain payments of cash. He was without clothes, without a home. He had no way to rent or build a home. Food had to be begged or stolen, unless in some way he could get hold of land or get to work. And hired labor would, if he had did not exercise the greatest care and get honest advice, result in something that was practically slavery. These conditions, of course, while true for the mass of freedmen, did not apply to workers in the army, artisans, or laborers in cities, or others who had exceptional chances to obtain work for cash at something like decent rates. So this is where you're really seeing kind of the, the, the white labor and black labor divide and this is where you're seeing the significance that i you know i i guess i was a little right about the panic of 1873 this was one induced by you know the the removal of silver uh both in germany and then in the united states backing uh the railroad bubble and you saw railroad strikes throughout it uh this talks about you know the prospective capital coming together in 1876 and so a way this affected it and of course you know you saw the rise of robber barons and and things like that with the westward expansion right um and so the way this this uh speaks about it is that kept that that killed the radicalism right and so what happened is white and black labor really split not just on white and black terms because there was already that tension in the south from extreme poverty uh, but that coalesced while in the north you saw the skilled labor unions step away from just the general labor unions and so unionization suddenly became you know kind of an elite workers thing and you've seen the kind of checkered history of unions in the united states in general unions are good and represent workers but they've also been isolated to skilled work very often in the united states when they have existed and they've often been very you know racist and and, ex- and xenophobic and, and things like that. And you see here, and we've talked about this in the past, it leaving out black labor. And now we're kind of seeing the roots of that. And we're seeing the roots of that in, you know, the Panic of 1873. Um, but we're also seeing the roots of that in that kind of, you know, killing Reconstruction reform and turning to all of the, the left and progressive movements in the United States that would be radical and could be radical other places suddenly turn liberal and lose their teeth. Yep. 100%. The white worker in the mass was equally poverty-stricken, except that he did usually hold, as a squatter, some land, and emancipation gave him better chance to hire his labor in cities. Finally, there were impoverished planters, merchants, and professional men who came out of the war with greatly reduced income and resources. In this setting of poverty, as nearly universal as one could have under modern conditions, must come the effort to set up a new state, and it is clear that the unprejudiced observer that no matter who had conducted that state, had there been no Negro or other alien elements to the land, if there had been no universal suffrage, if there would have been bitter dissatisfaction, widespread injustice, and vast transfer of wealth involving stealing and corruption. The freedman sought eagerly after the war property and income. He believed that his condition was not his own fault, but due to the theft of a mighty scale. He demanded reimbursement and redress sufficient for a decent livelihood. This came partially from the federal government, 
from religious bodies, and in one lamentable case, the new industry reached forth a careless helping hand, expecting a profit from the venture. That sounds a little bit like something modern. Um, No more extraordinary and disreputable venture ever disgraced American businesses disguised as philanthropy than the Freedmen's Bank, a chapter in American history which most Americans naturally prefer to forget. The organization of the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company had been called one of the few sensible attempts made at the close of the Civil War to assist the ex-slave. During the Civil War and when colored soldiers became numerous, the matter of their savings became of importance, and military savings banks were created in Norfolk, Virginia, and at Beaufort, South Carolina. At the same time, there were various sums of money held by the Departments of Negro Affairs and the different Army Headquarters of the South. General Banks established a banker for Negroes at New Orleans in 1864, and General Butler and General Saxton in South Carolina established banks. Several efforts in 1865 were made to organize permanent saving banks, and Army Paymaster A.M. Sperry hoped to absorb the banks at Norfolk, Virginia, and Beaufort, South Carolina, and in New Orleans, Negroes planned a labor bank. In January 1865, Albert arranged a meeting of a number of interested persons and businessmen in New York, and the result was a bill to incorporate the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company introduced to the Senate. February 13, 1865, another bill was introduced to the House in the name of the Chief Justice Chase, added as a trustee. These bills were combined and passed, and Lincoln signed into law on March 3rd. He said this bank is just what the freedmen need, at the same time that he signed the bill creating the Freedmen's Bureau. The incorporators and trustees of the bank included Peter Cooper, William Cullen Bryant, A.A. Lowe, Gareth Smith, John Jay, and not the Cardinals player, uh, S.G. Howe, George L. Stearns, Edward Atkinson, and Chief Justice Chase. The business was confined to the Negro race, and at least two-thirds of the deposits must be invested in United States securities. For a while, the success of the Freedman Savings Bank was phenomenal, and the deposits extraordinarily encouraging. They came from day laborers, house servants, farmers, mechanics, and washerwomen, and the proverbial thriftlessness of the Negro seemed about to be disproven. North as well as South, the whites were agreeably surprised. Gradually, difficulties developed, and on the one hand, in the North, the bank was regarded as a philanthropy and not worth the careful control and oversight of those who had loaned their names to it. The Southern state governments began to oppose the branch because they were sort of a national system not under local control and took money away from local communities. The white banks were not deposed to cooperate and were often unfair, while the white planter regarded the Freedmen's Bank as part of the Freedmen's Bureau and did everything possible to embarrass it and curtail its growth. Before 1871, there had been errors in the conduct of the bank and disregard of law. Indeed, it is not quite clear whether in the original charter the bank had any right to establish branches outside of the District of Columbia. Soon the speculators of Washington were attracted by the assets of the bank and discovered how they were growing. These assets were, however, amply protected by provisions requiring investment mainly in government bonds. An amendment to the charter was introduced into Congress in 1870, which proved that one half of the deposits invested in United States bonds might be invested in other notes and bonds secured in real estate mortgages. Okay, so we're privatizing the Yay! Freedom. <laughs> Immediately, the pennies of the poor black laborers were replaced by worthless notes. Money was loaned recklessly to the speculators in the District of Columbia. Jay Cook and Company, the great bankers, borrowed half a million dollars, and this company and the First National Bank of Washington controlled the Freedmen's Bank between 1870 and 1873. 
Runs were started on the bank, and an effort was made to unload the whole thing on Fred Douglas as a representative Negro. This was useless, and the bank finally closed in June 1874. The Commission of Three, which liquidated the Freedman Savings Bank, paid depositors 30% and charged for their service $318,753. And that is where we're going to end it for this depressing note for this week. Uh, I know. I know. Yeah, there's the depressing part of the chapter. I mean, there's been depressing parts of this chapter. There's been statistic parts of this chapter. Sure, but that was was the big one. (laughs) There's... And there's been rampant theory in the chapter, which was nice. Which has been going. This chapter is also, from what I I can gather, a long one. So strap in, because this one's going to go for a while. Um, That being said, gang, we're 128 pages from the end. (laughs) 128 near pages. And we finally talked about the Panic of 1873, so I'm happy. We are are near... We can see it. I can I can taste it in my veins. We are we are within ten or twelve episodes of of ending this, God willing. Um and and here we go. So that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, there are a number of different ways you can reach out to us if you would like to. Uh, you can reach out to us through email, Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach out to us on Twitter. We are at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Uh, DMs are open. Uh, you can also reach out to us uh, through our Discord server. That is the easiest way to get a hold of Nathan at the very least. That's the way I'm most likely to respond because that's where I spend most of my time. Um it is just a community of good people that are also fans of the show or fans of other leftist content um, and and congregate there. And, you know, we play D&D. We play Final Fantasy 14. We hang out. We just we just talk as a community. Um, sometimes you just need a, a group of like minded people to vent to. And that is a place that is is more than welcome to accept you. Um, they're a great community and I'm proud to be a part of it. That being said, David. The link to our Twitter bio, the link to our Discord bio is in our Twitter. I'm alerting you to that, just in case you wanted to join. Okay. Also, yeah, because I don't, I don't really pop in unless much. you're summoned or something important happens. Yes. Um, that being said, it is time for the disclaimer. So take it away. This is why we didn't do it every week because I did do it every week, but we only recorded, <laughs> we only did it once out of two episodes. Suck we recorded. It. Ah, all right. Anyway, so we started this podcast. We were reading another long book, although we were summarizing it in capital. And that's always a book you wanted to read together. And so me and Nathan read it together. We recorded it. We said, what the hell? Maybe more people want to do this because you really want to read these books in a reading group. And ever since then, our vision's been that hopefully you're in some kind of party, some kind of organization doing on-the-ground action and working for this revolution. And your group is reading these books in its reading group, its political education group, uh, study group, whatever it is. And so, in that case, we can be another voice in that group, another sense of input, another part of context, uh, something else to help you get more out of the work. Um, save for that, save, you know, they're reading shorter works or something more 
applicable to what you're organizing around. Uh, and you're reading these works on your own. Hopefully we can be that reading group or that discussion group for you and save for that. Save you either get something like this where we're reading every word, so we're more like an enhanced ebook, or something that we summarize more. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want these works out there guiding your actions. Because when theory guides your actions as part of a political and revolutionary process, then those actions transform into praxis, which is theory and action. And without that praxis, the theory is completely useless. It does nothing. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name is David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.